Hey, Tony, how you been? What's up, Kevin? Yeah, welcome to episode nine of nine. the My Warped Life. We're, we're, we're on episode nine. Running. We're going, and we're actually going in order. Because for a while, because <laughs> a while there, we're going back and forth, back and forth on what number it actually was. But uh, how you been? I've been great. I've been great. I've been busy. Work is starting to ramp up. Everything is starting to open up. Um, and nobody can get anything. <laughs> There's no supply of anything. You know anywhere. how I know it's ramping up? It's like for about 12 months, all people wanted to do was needed advice on how to stay in business or are we going to get through this? How are we or, do it? And I was on the phone all day long. No, Some, but nobody's calling you. Now there's no calls. <laughs> I'm not getting a call. I look at my email. I'm, I'm actually, good, Kevin. Are you sure you don't want me to help? I could really give you some great advice. No, we're good, Kevin. <laughs> I'm, good. I'm working again. I'm starting to look at my best buy newsletter I get every morning. You know, like, like because I'm on mailing list, you know, I'm starting to go through my junk mail. Like, it's that time. Well, I'm so. excited about episode nine because one of the we're getting back to the music. That's yeah. what I'd like to say. It's fun. This episode is all about uh, a band called Less Than Jake that is was celebrating their 30th anniversary this year, which so. is weird to think because they seem like such a young, vibrant. When you listen to their music, it's just youth and spit and vinegar and fun. And you're, when you say 30 years, I'm like, what? And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how a band, especially right now, to me at least, how a band is going to sustain a career over 30 years. Are we going to have bands that can sustain a career without big hit singles? They've had a little bit of radio play, but they have a, you know, how they, how do you maintain a career over 30 years and make a living at it these days? 30 years, they're sustained. And I think it's because they were just a rocking, amazing band and talented. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of my history with them, which I think even surprised you in some yeah, ways. I was chicken. And uh, I was able to interview everyone in the band, plus uh, a member who, who has left the band that was so right integral on. to their success. Cool. Uh, and, and why he left the band. Uh, you know, there, a lot of people would maybe want to know that. It was really great because I was able to talk to all the members of the band mm -hmm. and you know let's hit it off with Chris DeMakes who's actually the lead singer of the band and find out how he entered the band you know quite frankly we had to cut our teeth and kind of learn who we were and we were we were the the black sheep is essentially in Florida, you know, in the early nineties, if you remember, I mean, you were out with Lollapalooza, you know, what was going on in the musical climate. We were ushering out the eighties, alternative music, punk rock was starting to become uh, part of the mainstream. And uh, so here we were in Gainesville, Florida, which is, you know, just another small uh, <laughs> redneck town in North Florida, if it wasn't for the university of Florida and the college. And, you know, we're, we're this ska punk band kids with, you know, blue mohawks and nose piercings, uh, playing alongside bands that sounded like Leonard Skinner. So we definitely <laughs> stuck out. We definitely got noticed. And, uh, you know, building that fan base there, by the time we finally got out to California in the Northeast where ska and punk were really happening, uh, we had kind of already got our footing. You know, wouldn't you expect a, a ska band from Florida to have some Leonard Skinner into it? Uh -huh. You know, it's like... No, absolutely not. Yeah, but they did, no. and it was really cool. <laughs> and and then, you know, another person I got to speak to about how he got into the band was J.R., who uh, plays horns in the band. I think it's kind of a, like a seven year growth spurt from when Chris and Vinny met each other down in Port Charlotte and were in high school together in Port Charlotte, Florida. And that's where they met Buddy and Roger and you know the other, there's been more past members of Less Than Jake than current members of Less Than Jake for sure. And uh, you know, they've kind of wheeled it around and then from like 92 to 99, they toured a lot and then around 2000 i joined the band and then like in 2018 vinnie left the band and we had matt yonker join the band but from 
2000 when I joined the band till 2018 when Vinny left, it was 18 years of the same lineup, which was kind of crazy. And, you know, Jay from Bad Religion said to me at one point, he's like, and my history of knowing less than Jake, you five guys are the only guys that I've known. He goes, and that's kudos. He goes, because I've already gone through two guitar players, three drummers and a partridge in a pear tree, you know, so. That's really saying a lot. I mean, that iteration from 92 until 2000. But that means he did say, you know, there are more uh, members that are gone than there are currently in the. Right. But you right. got to expect that after a 30 year band, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, people evolve and, and, sure. and it's, uh, it's how you recognize that, you know, and, and keep going, but realizing you may go through some changes, you know, and, and then they met this guy, Roger, who kind of like, Roger's the guy like in this band that most of the guys could go out to a pizza place and have a dinner and everything. And then there's Roger. Like if you're with Roger, you're going to get recognized. You know, you always have that one person in the band that you, you just can't hang out but he's always recognizable and that's Roger. So I saw like Chris and Vinny play as Listen Jake when they were like a pop punk band in like early 92. And then uh, I started jamming with those guys in like February or January of 92 maybe. And uh, my first show I think was April of 92. Wait, no, 93, 93. That's a year later, 93. Yeah, that sounds right. And this person that you said was you know, the one that was recognizable. Did you not get video of that person? No, we didn't, of course. I'm like, I was expecting video to see like a bone his in his nose or something. Yeah, you know, you he know, just like, had long dreadlocks. So He's a good-looking no guy, video. you know. You know? <laughs> and, you know, how do you make it as a ska band? And a lot of that came down to what, you know, Chris said was a little bit of his background that allowed him to be in a band. My mom and dad were uh, musicians. They they sang from the time my dad got out of high school. Uh, he sang alone for about 10 years, and then mom joined him in the 70s. They were a duo. They played everything from weddings to, uh, you know, churches to private parties to, to nightclubs. And, uh, you know, so my first uh, memories were being around music. It was always welcomed in my house. It didn't matter if I brought a Slayer record or a Striper record home. My parents never judged it. They, did, they, they didn't care. They just, music was music in my household. So... It was very important to have that uh, that push. You know, I told my dad in 94, I said, you know, I came home and, and I was avoiding the conversation. He said, so mom and I want to know how your grades are. And I had quit school that October. I walked out of a, lo a logic class. I just, my mind was frazzled. And I, I all I wanted to do was play music. I said, dad, I quit. And mom and dad were disappointed for, for about maybe four or five months. And my dad went to Raleigh in March of 95. And he walked to my brother said, you got to see this dad. And he walked into this punk record store and there was our first record Pezcore on a, on a, on a display up front. Yeah. And yeah. you know, back then, if you had a CD, you were legit. <laughs> I have to say that's, that's really cool. I mean, if my kid came up to me, well, two things, one, very, very cool to have parents that are, are welcoming and supportive. But one, if my kid came up to me and said I dropped out of school, that would be really bad. But what would be even worse would to be bringing home a, a, a Striper record home. No way. <laughs> Not cool at all. Hey, it was funny you mentioned Striper. I used to have them come to my uh, – when I was working at a community college east of here called Citrus College, yeah. Striper would come and do free shows. <laughs> of to, course they to do To spread the shows. word of the Lord, you know, <laughs> dressed as Bumblebees, the Bumblebee no. metal band, you know. They would come out and, and – bring their production, the striper truck and their band, and they would go around schools and do, because they were preaching, yeah, you know, 
Christian rock, rock and roll. you know, yeah. praise, praise rock and roll. That was uh, Striper. But, you know, it's how they, you know, stand out as a ska band. And I was, I had to ask, you know, Chris this question, like, you know, how do you, you know, like what, you, they were a band that was known for a lot of things. They were like, they wore costumes on stage. Sure. They breathed fire, which is actually leads to a pretty cool story because uh, they were breathing fire at a show and Green Day was burning their drum kit every day. They'd light their drum kit on uh -huh. fire. And I actually came back a couple months afterwards. This is in Smirnoff Amphitheater in da Dallas. And Smirnoff Amphitheater, and I was coming back through on my Latin tour, the Watcha tour. We were coming down there. And I come back there, and, and there's a, a like a fire captain standing there waiting for me. You, know, you don't never like that in this business. Like, you know, the <laughs> fire marshal, you don't want good. him standing there waiting for you. And it's like 105 degrees. It's now August. We're coming back through. And he's standing there with a newspaper's hand, and I have no idea. But my bus driver gets off, and right away he starts talking, and my bus driver's pointing up into the bus that, you know, Kevin's up on the bus. So I get off, and he's going, uh, Kevin, I'm, I'm here actually to arrest you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what are you here to arrest me for? Oh, he shit. goes, see this newspaper? This is the cover of when the Warp Tour was here earlier this summer. And you didn't have a permit for these bands lighting things on fire or breathing fire. And I was like, oh, yeah, can I? It's really hot out here. Why don't we go in my bus? It's air conditioned. We can talk through this. And I started to explain the Warp Tour. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, these bands, I rung them up. They were in such trouble after all this. Uh, we, we talked through it. I said, you know, a thousand people on the road, you know, sometimes I can't keep my eyes on everything. And I'm very apologetic to this man. And so he wrote me a ticket for $600 for, for open fire. So I said, okay, so I paid the fine. Uh -huh. But the coolest part about it was, was I charged both bands, Green Day and Less Than Jake, $600 for the fine. So I made $600 <laughs> on the deal. So, Come on, well, man! You yeah. can't tell stories like that because they're gonna be pissed. No, I told him. I told him straight up, like when I was talking to these guys, that you know, I made an extra six hundred bucks for my trouble. But one of the things they were known for was all these stage antics. Sure, the, that was all bore out of you know having the having our roadie on stage. It was like, okay, you you loaded in the shirts, you set up the merchandise. Now what are you gonna do? Here, put this mask on. You know, it was kind of like we 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 trimmed all the fat. We were on a shoestring budget, but the costumes were really bore out of. You know, pulling into Tucson, Arizona, two in the afternoon, load-ins not till five. You're playing some dingy punk rock dive bar. And uh, what back then, you know, the punk rock clubs were always in the worst areas of town. There wasn't much around. There'd be a check cashing place, a liquor store, and a thrift store. So I'd walk in the thrift store, and I that would kill 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour. I'd cruise around and find a wig, and I'd make the, you know, Roger laugh and be like, oh, it's 50 cents. I'm going to buy that. And I'd wear that wig that night on stage. And, you know, I'd be rocking out in the wigs. I would get them to look so real. And then after, like, three songs, I'd be banging my head. It would fall off, and you'd see the audience just, like, lose their mind. Like, they thought it was my real hair. So it just, it was, it was bore out of boredom, you know? And it just became part of the stage show. And we really loved all of us the big shows of the 80s that of course they came back but if you remember the mid early to mid 90s it was frowned upon to have pyro to have a, even a backdrop i remember people calling us a sellout when we put a backdrop up at some point we actually got to reminisce about one time the the best warp tour show for bands probably in the history of the warp tour you would never get it on their list of favorite places but actually the one that was most conducive we played a strip mall in sanford florida like right. And it was in 1997, Les and Jake was there, and 
it was the strip mall. They basically strung snow fence around it, and anyone could step over to come to the show. But the bands loved it because there was like a 99-cent liquor store. There was a strip club. There was a laundromat. And there was like a like a biker bar all in the strip mall, like where we played, where the Warp Tour was. And it was like we couldn't – so we had to park the buses like in a square and push them – like make a wall out of buses to make uh-huh. it work. And, you know, it was like one of the beginnings of this one promoter called – You were, it was called Being Fat Harried. There was this promoter called uh-huh. Fat Harry, and it was like Being Fat Harried. They'd show up. He had no, like, production, nothing, but we would make it work. Right. And it was a big show because uh, Limp Biscuit was actually on that tour, and that's right when they were breaking out, and that was their hometown. Um, but, you know, we could sit here and talk about a band that lasted 30 years and different things, but this really was kind of focused on, on why Warp Tour – was part of their business plan or part of their cultural plan. And, you know, it was like Chris kind of really touched on it, like he, how he looked at Warp Tour. It was like we were farmers and we were going out every, every two years and we were tilling the soil. There was, all, there was always a new group of 13, 14, 15, and 16-year-old kids that had never been to a Warp Tour before. That was their first one, you know? And we were the new band for a few years. And then we became... Not the veterans yet, but that mid that band that is yeah they they've been around and then we became the veterans of the tour and one of the greatest compliments ever was like 2018 the last full year that we that we did the tour the last full year that it was out we were somewhere and we went out to our merchandise booth as we always do we're signing autographs and this young kid he's like 15 years old fresh faced kid comes up and he has our vinyl and he says hey will you sign this and I said, of course man you know sign it and he says man I've never heard you guys you guys were like the best band here today you're my favorite like are you a new band? I said, absolutely. <laughs> but that was such a cool thing to hear after all these years that this young kid is looking at us because we're part of this tour that his first experience, he had never heard of us. He had no idea of our history. And to be be looked at as a new band, that's why we kept doing the Warp Tour. I think, too, the they had a... Uh a presence on stage that was inspired by his love of shopping at thrift stores. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's great. It was great. I mean, it was like less than Jake was that band. I call them the entry level band to moshing. Like, you know, it was like everyone would run in circles and things and do fun. It wasn't like wall of deaths. And <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't like it, less than Jake was this fun party band that anyone could go out and have a good time with, you know, and as they became more of the veterans, you know, Buddy, who ha- you, we haven't met yet on this episode, but Buddy, who was a member, you know, really had some reflections of as they were, you know, maybe being that more veteran band, some of the things he saw. 2014, maybe was one where it wasn't so much an off year necessarily for how it did or anything, but it was just an off year for me on, it was out of sync with like bands that we were normally on tour with or whatever. Like there was no effects or there was no one that we knew, but it was good for me because then I found people, you know, you're forced to go out and go find those bands that you don't know. And I, you know, I got introduced to like story so far uh, that year and uh, like four years strong and some bands that I didn't really know, but then like found them by just them playing. I was like, who's this band? I'd go over and watch them. Yeah, so that was that was really good for me about the Warped Tour. There was always stuff on there that I didn't know, you know. I think the way you ended it too by doing the like you said, like by doing the big festival shows, made it go out with a bang, and uh, instead of trying to do like another last summer of Warped Tour or something and try to do the whole thing, and because like you said, it it did become sort of hit and miss. There were like some years that were not doing as well because, and it all just kind of depends on the bands and if you get lucky picking the right band because you and which I want to commend you for that over the years. Like you always had a knack for finding that band that was going to be big. Like you always got them early to sign on to the Warp Tour. Like, you know, someone like 
uh, Slim Shady, for instance, or, you know, the Black Eyed Peas or like, like so many bands that hadn't really broken yet. And then got big, like their song would come out right before the Warped Tour 2 and you already had them locked in. I want to jump in on that one too. It is true. Over the years, you, and is there a method that you would say, what was your method? Because you, you picked the right bands and, and you lasted for 25 years. You had a knack for understanding or, or, or maybe you relied on other people to help you, but how, how did you do it for so long and pick well, winners? Well, ultimately it was, you know, I would make the final decisions on things and, yeah. and work on the off, but, but it was, it was this really time that everyone believed that we, that warped fit into a master plan. You know, it fit into their mouth. Every band had a master plan, whether you were a new band, you want to get on Warp Tour to get that exposure, or you're a band that's sustaining a career, or well, some of those bigger bands. And, and these bands would have to maybe take a little less financially to make it work for them, but they knew in the long run it was going to work. Sure. You know, and there was just like, I think I maybe mentioned before, there was called the Pilgrimage to Pasadena. Like, you know, it was like September, October. We're talking working that far out. You know, we were only home a month from tour. Right, right. And then we just sat and I listened to music and I started out with a whiteboard and I would put my dream line up where I was. Right. And then I would start working from there. But then I would start getting to hear about, oh, this band and here's the way. That sounds really cool. And can you remember... Even they were on, I think, the tour more than any other band, right? Yeah, yeah they broke the record because Chris is like an amazing guy. He he's like a savant for things. Like he calls me every year on my birthday. Oh, every that's year great. calls me on my birthday. Can you remember why you chose them the very first time, or or that process, uh, or how did that come about? I don't know. I tried to think, and I I'd already been working with them in a club, so I okay. knew the band, and I knew they were exciting and entertaining, and and so. I, it was probably, you know, they were on a list of submissions and I was like, oh, I like that band because I was still working shows oh, then in clubs. Right. So I kind of knew that world. But, you know, it was funny because they, one day Chris comes up and goes, hey, in a week, it's our 350, how many, 365th day of playing Warp Tour. And they made shirts and it was a party, but he knew like they'd been on that many Warp Tours. Wow. And I think they ended up with almost 400 shows throughout the year. And it's, People will ask me what your favorite year was, but JR had his opinion what the favorite year that they were on. My favorite year was probably 2006, because I remember the lineup on our stage, and it was us, No Effects, Bad Religion, Joan Jett, The Bouncing Souls, I feel like the Buzzcocks were on there for a little bit. I had recently seen like a set time, you know, somebody took a picture of the set times or whatever. And I was blown away. I think Talib Kweli was on a couple of dates of that. Like, Kevin, it was like, honest to God, I remember just sitting, you know, we always called it the VIP area on the stage where you'd sit up on one of the bars there and you kind of sit around and, you know, with your friends and have drinks and watch whoever was playing last that, that particular night. And I feel like Bad Religion maybe, if we played the most shows, Bad Religion probably played last at the most shows. You know what I mean? Like, cause that was the band everybody wanted to see, you know? That was the year. And, and we did talk about how these bands would get on a cycle. So you did, you know, you did odd years and you did even years and it went back. And so you'd kind of find like warp these groups of bands that, built it into their cycles. Okay, we're going to we're going to go what we're going to do is we're going to do warp tour this summer and then the following summer we're going to go spend it in Europe 
maybe, doing what we do there. Or, and then we're going to come back and do Warp the following summer, usually based on a new record coming out. Right. So it really was kind of the ecosystem for a lot of these bands. They, they got it. And uh, Chris's father and me became pretty good friends. Chris talked about when he brought his dad out on the road. My father came out uh, in 2016. And uh, he rode overnight. I flew him up to Atlanta. We went to Atlanta Braves game. And then St. Pete, Vinoy Park was the next day. And uh, we pulled in that morning. I told him, I said, you know, the night before, I said, let's get to bed early, get a good night's sleep. I said, I want to get you up. You got to see this. And he just was amazed. We got up that morning at about 630 and we watched the first truck pull into Vinoy Park. And it's amazing. There's, I've, I've said this over the years. There's no other tour. I've, I've been, I've done every festival in Europe, Australia, uh, England, the United States. There's no tour that took us essentially a small town of 12 to 1300 people, truck drivers, catering people, security people, stagehands, sound people, bands, etc., production crews, and op, you know, set up at 6:30 in the morning. By 10 o'clock, everything's completely set up. All day long, then about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, the last band ends. It all comes down. Everything's back in the trucks by 11, 11, 30, drive four, five, six, seven, eight hours overnight again to reset up everything. And, you know, as, as a band, you know, we, we would sleep in, you know, 9, 30, 10 in the morning and you'd wake up, walk out of the bus and there the city was, the whole town was set up again. It was remarkable. My dad could not believe it. He just, he never thought of it in those terms. Like, you got to see this happening. You know, these guys are out there hammering, you know, uh, things on the ground, putting up tents. It's, it's, it's unreal. The staging, everything. Yeah. It's, it's no joke. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that, that I'm a band and I can sleep in until nine. Right. Things got to happen, man. <laughs> sleep until nine, Xavier. Nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it hasn't always been smooth with Lesson J. And one time, this is a lot of people wonder, like, I get asked, were you at all the Warp Tour shows? I had all the Warp Tour shows. And I go, there was a moment that I went home. I, there was a moment I thought I could come home and see my wife and my baby, was a little older. Right. You know? Let me just come home for a couple shows. And I, I, we, were, <laughs> we were in Lawrence, Kansas. And um, they, I left to go to the airport, and I was going to miss a couple shows, miss one show in St. Louis and catch up with the band after that. And by the time I left the venue, I was getting calls that they'd, they'd lit the outhouse on fire. And then <laughs> the outhouse got pushed into the river. It was just like this chaos. I got home and the phone just never stopped ringing. And Fran was like, Dad's not home. Let's set the outhouse on fire. Fran was super pissed. And all of a sudden I get like, they're in St. Louis and I'm getting a call like, this tour is out of control and this tour is totally out of control. And it's being led by a band called Less Than Jake, <laughs> supported by a band called Pennywise. The flyer said, uh, sorry to all our fans, but the greedy fucks at this venue have decided they want to take 30% of our merchandise. And we just refuse to do that. So um, we want you to take these flyers uh, and, uh, you know pass them around or something like that. So we had stuck them everywhere. Let everybody know that if they want merchandise from us, they can come to, you know, come to our tour bus or something. We gave directions. Well, the fans decided that they took all our flyers and they were, they were lighting porta potties on fire with them, using them as kindling. And you had just taken off, I think the day before to go home for a couple of days. And you found out, we thought we were going to get kicked off the tour. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was like, 
Then they. Well, it was good intentions, right? But, they well, were well, they didn't want to charge. They, they didn't want to charge the merch so, rate. But right. the, you know, this is contemporary concerts, which was Irv Zuckerman. He was kind of a badass in the Midwest. Well, they went across the street to a gas station and literally set up T-shirt booths and stuff. So it wasn't like an internet as much there. But Irv got on the phone and I, my ear like lights on it lit me up like at that point. Then I got back on back to catch up with the tour. By the time I landed, two other promoters had canceled our shows. Oh no! They canceled the shows because the out of control tour on the road. We had no money for hotels. We had nowhere to go. But I, we had like my friend in Buffalo, uh, Darien Lakes, which also had a concert venue. I called him and said, "Hey." Can we come camp out in your backstage? Because we're like, we need to get there. We have nowhere to go. And you have an amusement park. And will you let my, everyone go to the amusement park? So everyone went to the amusement park oh, for two days. Cool. This is when the story gets really interesting. All right. <laughs> you could just talk about Les and Jake. They put out a lot of great albums, a lot of songs, did a lot of tours. But I started like getting to know them better and better. And Vinny, who hasn't really come in yet. And, and Chris one time said, Hey, uh, Kevin, can we talk to you? And uh, I said, sure. So I think, we, you know, we, we sat on their butt and they said, look, would you be interested in managing us? And I'm like, manage? Like, I oh, mean, I don't even, I don't know. You know, it's like, I've never been a manager. Kind of running the warp Tour I, right you know, <laughs> Well, you know, I'm, and, and I, it kind of went on a few times during the summer. I think we met a few times. And I said, you know, I just like them. I, I go, this could be a band that, could fit into my like wheelhouse of doing things where it was like didn't fit into a mold was willing to try things get out there and do it so i agreed to manage them so really understanding management now you know more it was like you needed a day-to-day person and at that point i I found a friend uh, who was uh around the music scene a manager named laura murphy who came in and really did some great jobs as day-to-day manager which allowed me to to think about big picture stuff for them. Right. And, you know, one of the first big picture things was, you know, how do you expand their, their, their fan base? They're a band that's willing to play for everyone. They right. don't really think. And I had heard at CAA that Bon Jovi was going to come back. They're making their comeback tour. What year was this? Oh, my God. I can't even remember what year. But it was like they're before, like they disappeared for a while. Right. And then they were going to come back and they were going to try to play arenas. But it was in the 2000s? Was it 2006, oh my, 2007? No, way it was earlier than that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was early. Like, you know, we could, Xavier could find the date, right? Xavier, what date? <laughs> we'll just find? flash it at the bottom of the screen yeah, for we'll those that are watching the videos. So <laughs> I could, so I was like, I heard they couldn't find, they couldn't find someone to open for them. The people you were, got them to open for Bon Jovi? Yeah. So people. Less were, than Jake. Yeah. So, so. That's yeah, awesome. So I'm like. That's a good start, manager. And, and it was a side. So I'm like, Daryl. Less than Jake will open for Bon Jovi. Yeah. And he's like, what? <laughs> Who's Scott Less Man? Than Jake? No, he knew Less Than Jake because he worked <laughs> with him. He's like, Less Than Jake? I go, it's great because they're going to be a really cool band that doesn't come out and try to upstage Bon Jovi. Yeah, exactly. They don't sound anything like them. Um, it's not going to be and like. it's fun. You know? it's, it's like, a, you know what it's like? It's like before you watch a taping of a sitcom and they have a comedian come out. It's like they get the crowd rolling for yeah, Bon Jovi. apologies to everyone in the band, but you're not as good looking as John Bon Jovi, <laughs> so you didn't have to worry about that. I think you're that. gorgeous. But, I you think know, you're gorgeous. It was like one of those things where it was like, so I took it to the band, and that was the coolest thing about Less Than Jake. They didn't take 
a long time to make a decision. Chris was, uh, you know, kind of summed up how when it got brought to him. You know, this is before social media. This is before, you know, how do you get a band? You know, we weren't blowing up at radio like Blink. Uh, you know, we were doing the biggest thing for us really was every, you know, every other summer doing the Warp Tour uh, and, and that, the, the print promotion on the Warp Tour, the marquees, every program you guys would hand out. The radio stations, 105.9, Vans Warp Tour is here today. We got Less Than Jake. We got Pennywise. That name recognition, being on Bon Jovi back then, it was a story. You know, it's like, who are these guys? It was just, you know, we were constantly trying to think of how do we keep pushing the name out there? And the Bon Jovi thing, you know, we were getting paid all right. We were getting one merchandise kiosk on the third floor by the hot dog stand. You know, they, <laughs> we were selling a hundred dollars a night in merch. It wasn't a big money-making tour. We did it. We did it for the story. And, you know, you had a hand in, in, uh, in, in putting that all together. I remember when we got offered it, we were just flabbergasted. Uh, and I thought, you know, oh, Bon Jovi, they haven't been around for 10 years. What could this possibly do three to five thousand seat theaters at best no next thing i know i saw the routing it was 15 20 000 seat basketball arena yeah. hockey arena sold out everywhere the band i don't even think realizes but when they put that tour up on sale and it sold out like it was yeah, slamming a lot of people tried to get on that tour sure and actually i was approached by acaa at that point like would it be would you guys consider dropping off like and letting some would, would you like because I think people were willing to pay money to right, come on the right. tour and we were getting paid money. And I said, no, man, well, once we commit to something and, and Daryl knew that I was that person and my band was that, we're committed. So they went with it. And then all of a sudden they're like in these 15, 20,000 person arenas sold out. How much are we getting paid again? Well, it wasn't, no, it wasn't <laughs> even a money thing because I'll tell, we'll talk about that a little later, Tony. We get to the money, <laughs> but here's what Roger said about those arenas. That was a crazy thing to, uh, kind of get put into that arena world we had never played in a arena and like the backstage hype of a band like that i mean really that was a crazy opportunity just not not even to like play in front of new fans but just to experience that level of of the music industry you know with like the security and the catering and all that stuff like we hadn't really seen too much of that at that point so that was pretty awesome so all of a sudden they're like on this arena tour no that's amazing i mean just to say for someone who's never managed a band before even though you have this amazing experience with warp tour you know everybody but to be able to get them on something like that immediately is amazing Vinny had some pretty cool you know reminiscing about that and about being on that tour with Bon Jovi. As a punk rock band, and you're used to going on punk rock tours to being able to bridge that gap to something so wild of an idea, but mm -hmm. it went Not back to back. fairly seamlessly, you know? I, it, I look back on that and go, hey, th there's a moment of Less Than Jake where we weren't preaching to the converted of the Less Than Jake world that people were coming in stone cold we have no idea who Less Than Jake is. We're here to see Bon Jovi play for two hours. There was no buffer. It went 30 minutes from, you know, doors, 30 minutes later, Less Than Jake for 30 minutes, 30 minutes more for Bon Jovi to set up. And then Bon Jovi came out and played for two, two and a half hours. Bon Jovi actually warmed up to the band. They'd come down and hang out in the dressing room a little bit. Say, you know, Tico was really great with the band. And then it was like, all of a sudden it was like, I get the routing. And it was like one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off. And I'm like, oh, we had to figure out how the money money would work. You know, right. I think we were getting, 
you know, like five grand a show, which is it's not bad for an opening act on an arena tour. Yeah, that's great. Not bad for someone not being expected to bring anyone. It paid for a bus. It paid for a couple crew. We weren't selling a lot of merchandise. So I went back to the agents and said, got permission for them to play a club show in each town. The, oh, while they were on the on tour, the day that's off. brilliant. Okay. So the band was getting five grand for that show, and we were probably getting five to seven grand for the club show. Yeah. And so they were, and they were a band that's used to working every day. And they're only playing a half an they're hour. They're playing a half arena. hour. They didn't have to do a lot of press. There wasn't a whole lot for them to do in between. So they were able to go out and, and play, you know, different types of things. And Vinny kind of touched on that. It was so wild to go, hey, we're going to play... New Jersey at the Continental Airlines Arena. And then we're going to play Stone Pony in Asbury Park the, the following night. And it was, it was cool, man, because John Bon Jovi came in and he did say, uh, hey, uh, you guys are playing every night. You know, we take time off, but you guys are going from this to clubs, then back to this. And he goes, man, like that reminds me of when you know, Bon Jovi first started, we were cutting our teeth on everything. If they said, hey, you want to go play a mall? Absolutely. We're going to play a mall. And that to, to hear it from somebody else, it, it, it mattered in the totality. It, it mattered so much to go, hey, like you guys are really doing it. You're being a band. You're doing what bands are supposed to do, which is go play shows, go be entertaining, go have a good time, go, you know, do whatever. And yeah, fuck yeah. You know, that was great. I'll bet John Bon Jovi, after having that wonderful conversation with him, went back to his band and said, God, I'm glad we don't have to do that shit anymore. <laughs> yeah. I love John Bon Jovi. <laughs> Fuck bon Jovi, that. But it was, it was great. You know, so, so the Bon Jovi tour went great. You know, yeah. so things started, you know, things were going good. You know, I'm cool. And, and then we decided, like, they were an inter- needed to be an international band, you know. Uh, they'd never really been overseas so a lot of my focus at that point would be like, okay, what are like, okay, how are we going to expand this base for you? You know, you know, you play in the United States a lot, but how do we get you overseas? And I made one other kind of, kind of mistake as a manager. They were on Capitol records. And when you release a record, the label decides where they're going to put the record out. Is it going to be which territories and everything? Right. And, I didn't know that if they didn't put it out in a territory, I couldn't, we couldn't just go do it ourselves. Right. So we basically went and put a record out ourselves in, in London and it went gold actually. What? Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was almost gold. It was like a very, and they were on BBC radio. It was all this stuff going on. Well, what and did the label say about we, that? Well, no one knew until it got big. Was the Warp Tour there at the same time yeah, or was that just that? We, we were coming in, we were starting to go over there because all the bands that were big over there were like Blur and Oasis and, right, and right, toe-gazing right. bands. And I was kind of breaking in the music by getting us the smallest stages at festivals. So Warp Tour would play Reading and Leeds and go over to Pukle Pop and Lowlands. We would bring a skate ramp. We would we would disrupt these big festivals. Absolutely. One time I smuggled in a bunch of homeless people because they gave me directions for my tour bus and, and I brought all these drunk homeless people in with uh. me and talking about getting yelled at by the festival producers that they're so buttoned up over there. But it was like less than jig. 
Oh, yeah. It was like, you know, we, we were going around. Hey, it's Kevin yeah, Lyman yeah, yeah. in the work tour, and here are all my friends. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're like sleeping with their big pints with beer on the side of the. It was, and I said, I need extra six passes today because I brought some extra crew. Uh, you know, but there I am, like traveling around the country with Daryl Eaton was with us, all right? And Daryl was there, and we were, and Jens was my German tour manager, also worked on Warped. And, you know, we were just having this time. And, you know, but you ask, you can, we'll do a thing on international. I could tell international stories forever. But, you know, I finally asked JR, what was your favorite international event? I think my favorite international thing was probably, you. it wasn't the earlier stuff because the earlier stuff was so punk rock. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to figure it all out. But I think for me, it was maybe it was 2014 when you did the Warped at Alexandria Palace in London, right? That was, you know, man, I, I'm getting chills thinking about it because, you know, it's again, it's it's you created this idea that became a global fucking entity. You know what I mean? Like wherever we go in the world, people talk about Warped Tour, you know, and that to me is like. You know, it's great that they know our band, you know, but like, I think it was cool. The coolest thing for me is when Less Than Jake became a succinct thought with the Warp Tour. You know what I mean? Like when people thought of Warp Tour, they thought of Less Than Jake. And that is, you know, the symbiotic relationship that I appreciate. So it was really cool because we, we started focusing on going over to, you know, going over to London, going over yeah. and working those markets. And it was kind of, it was kind of interesting because sometimes it's about timing and, the way we kind of broke them was I was doing warp tour overseas and uh, we had this moment in time when, when I needed someone. For us, it was supposed to be bad religion that was supposed to play. They couldn't do the tour. And then you called and said, Hey, do you want to do warp tour in Australia? And we were like, okay, cool. Let's, let's, let's do it. And it was on new started new year's Eve in Zealand. New Zealand. It was beautiful. And uh, I remember Fletcher like threw a guitar and did some wild shit on stage at midnight and like it kicked it off. I went, this is crazy. And this is so cool. Then went to Australia. We rented our own RV and drove around Australia. All of us crammed into this RV, sleeping on the floor, sleeping in the couch. We had uh, Matt Malice with us tour managing and he was sleeping across the both front seats. Like, and we were roughing it, but we couldn't believe that we were in Australia. We were literally across the globe playing punk rock music. And we couldn't, the gratitude, number one, but just the experience, we couldn't believe that we were there. Things are going good. Records are coming out. But let's hear what happened. You go into things, right? And, and liking someone and respecting someone. But the same thing as when you're leaving Less Than Jake or leaving Warp, there's moments that you just go, Here's the brick wall, and and it's done. The brick wall. I got fired. What? Oh, yeah. I got fired. You got Bon Jovi. You got fired. <laughs> yeah, I got fired, you know, and, and I think- what? You know, no, 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 no. This is not very specific. Kevin, why did you get fired? Well, I think Chris maybe kind of brought up a good point. I've never seen anybody as busy as you, especially when we were out on that warp tour. I mean, you're just getting yanked. Your radio's going off. Your cell phone's going off. You're riding around on your bike. You're over here. You're over there. And it was just like, there'd be times I'd see you and I had something to talk to you. And I would just, I wouldn't even go talk to you just because I could just tell, you know. And um, 
it, it to be able to juggle all those things in and of itself is a is an amazing thing. I'll never forget the day I got fired. Okay, I had just left CAA, and they had their old old building on Wilshire and uh, Santa Monica. Right, and I'm driving down Wilshire, and Vinny calls me, and he goes, Kevin, you know, I, we just got to make a change, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, okay. I I was like, oh, okay, and. I'm going down Wilshire, and he told me, and I, I look at how we had no contracts. We're just, I love right. these guys. You had no contracts I'm, I'm as like, a manager. Well, no, I don't believe in them. So I'm like, cool. All right, no problem. That was our deal. When we're done working with each other, it's cool. I make a right turn going down Doheny, and I realize I managed two other bands at that point. I managed the Ataris, right. and I managed H2O. Um, Ataris had some hits in that period, but at that point, and Chris, who was the lead singer, He's doing very good now, but he had some issues and he had some problems. And I pulled every string I could to start doing the same things for them. And they were over in Europe. And Chris missed the ferry boat from like Scandinavia to get down to Germany for these festivals. I got him on the Bazaar Festival. Right. So all of a sudden I had to fly Matt Malice, who we talk about is my business manager now. But he flies over to help sort this out. And I'm like, fuck this. So I decide that I got to fire them. So I call Chris, wake him up. And I go, Chris, I got to fire you. I'm not going to manage you anymore. Oh, no. So I'm still going down, like almost to the 10 freeway. And I realize I still manage H2O. And I loved H2O, but H2O is a band you manage. They weren't really profitable as a band for myself because I wanted them, to, they needed to make money. Right. So I decided I better fire them before I got into <laughs> too much traffic. So you're saying in the whole, the same car ride, Oh, yeah. You I, got fired and then you fired I dissolved more. my whole yep, I'm out. I dissolved the whole management company within like three miles. You know? <laughs> and you know, went on to but let me ask you this though. I mean, getting fired is an emotional, horrible is there any bad blood? Is there any no, I mean this band went on to work with me? I mean, we oh, worked they, they stayed on the tour, 10, right? 15 Forever. years. Yeah. I mean, we still do things together. But I'm telling you, managing, it was it was great. But I realized that, you know, I liked the big picture. I couldn't do the small little micro things you have to do sometimes. Like I, what? You know, it's like me. Sometimes I forgot to change my underwear. Sometimes things no, like no, that. No, no, you no, know? no. But, but no, I mean, it's like, you know. As a micro, you, you had had big picture things, certainly with the Warped Tour, getting a lot of things moving. But as a band manager, you have to deal with. You have to deal with everything. Someone needs, someone is... needs to get a piece of equipment fixed. Mm. Or someone might be having some issues with their car at home sometimes. Go fix your own car. You know, and I'd be like, wait, or or, so that, or maybe a band doesn't like gathering their luggage at the ter the uh, the luggage turn at the airport and I just we're all adults, grab the bags yeah, and let's get, get out of here. Let's go. You know, but it was it was no issues. I mean, to be honest, you know, we you know, we talk stuff all the time. You know, we still keep in touch and, and hearing from these guys and hearing what they're doing. And I ask these guys, you know, what else are you guys doing to stay relevant in, in this time? So Buddy had things that are going on. Like a lot of the things that kill bands is they'll like break up for a while and then then all of a sudden they're back on the scene. And that that's usually like rejuvenates them for a minute because if you've been gone for a while, people are like, oh, wow. But then if, if you've been gone too long, then when you come back, it's like a big thing for a minute, but then everyone forgets about you and it's over again. But we just never stop. So we're always like in people's faces. And then, you know, we, we were pretty good with our fans. And a lot of our fans stuck around because we were, you know, kind of in touch with our fans a lot, I think. And uh, I don't know. We also never had that huge success. Like where if you're one of those bands that takes off in the mainstream and you get like super huge and then you're the flavor of the month, then the flavor goes bad at some point, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. 
And uh, for us, we never, we just kind of reached a certain level of, of success that was good, nice and comfortable for us. And, uh, you know, it's not like a level of fame where I can't go to the grocery store and all that kind of stuff, but, it, but we were able to perpetuate ourselves. And then we just hit that and plateaued. So, and we've just been kind of riding that out. They got to a, a specific flavor and then they stayed there. Well, they did, but that flavor could do kind of play with anyone. Three of the bands on that tour that we did, that Project Revolution tour was uh, Linkin Park, Corn. Snoop Dogg and The Used. The Used was the only one that kind of fit in because we'd done the Warped Tour with them. But even that is like out of the box for us a little bit. Right. Uh, bon Jovi, obviously the one that, uh, the tour that when you were managing us, uh, I mean, that's super out of the box. That was like a complete snafu and weird. Uh, <laughs> let's see, what else is worth? Three, the 311 cruise we did. That's not really that far out of the box though because they're kind of in that, uh, you know, ska world a little bit. But they, they got, they had much huger success than us, I guess. People don't like to get out of the box at all. Uh, you know, they're scared if they leave their genre, it's, it's going to end their career or something. But for us, it, especially going in there, like that that uh, Project Revolution, like uh, Lincoln Park tour, you know, we were going on super early in the day. Like people hadn't even gotten off work really. We, we went on at like 4.30 or 5. So people were just getting into these amphitheaters. And, uh, you know, the cheap seats are in the lawn. So some of our fans were up on the lawn, but just, like the whole front row was still pretty empty because people weren't there yet. But that kind of stuff lights like a, a fire under our ass. Like it gets us going and it makes us play even harder instead of like getting nervous and freaking out. We're just like, we're going to go out there. And Chris would go out in the crowd and like, you know, grind up on the people that were sitting there. And, you know, we would make fun of the people. And I don't know. I think uh, for us, it's just been, you just got to battle it out when, when you're in those situations. And so we, we've never really had that much in the way of fear, I guess. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Buddy talks about that. Chris talks about like evolving as a band over that time you have to evolve. You have to change with the times. Uh, otherwise you don't survive. And that's with anything in life. I'm sure you talk about that at your classes. You know, you, you have to keep forward momentum. You can't be looking in the rear view mirror. Yesterday's over. And, uh, that's so important, especially in the music industry. I mean, we, we've been through, uh, Vinyl, cassettes, CDs, MP3s, streaming, and, you know, and whatever. They like playing their music live. I think they get excited about that set list yeah, every day, they right, and put it forward and everything. Roger touched on something that so many bands, I feel, don't sometimes. How many times have I heard from people, I really, you know, don't like my music or those songs? Maybe they wrote them for a different reason. I think number one, above everything else, is like that we always wrote songs for us, you know, we always wrote songs that we liked and we love our songs and we have fun playing them. I think like some bands, you know, in certain times, certain, certain genres pop up and they kind of start playing a certain style of music that maybe they're not really super true to, you know, I mean, here we are 30 years later, we still like feel the same vibes musically. So writing songs from the heart, you know, playing music that you really love, I think is a plus if you want to be in a band for a long time. And it's also learning how, what Vinny always said. And, and one of the things you're going to find when, when he mentions this is, is something a lot of people don't find, realize that, that Vinny uh, was the catalyst for one of the major record labels in the scene of music. For me, being a punk rocker meant that you have to do everything from screening the shirt to like, ordering ordering whatever you have to do to changing a wheel to whatever being a punk rocker meant that you had to know how to do everything and i always took that to heart so even as less than jake progressed i started to go well you know what i want to put out other records so i started fueled by ramen and that turned out to be a whole nother thing right and uh then it went from 
hey, I, I, I want to understand more about the process of screen printing. We, we screen printed a lot of record covers and our own T-shirts for the first few, few years being a band, but I wanted to know more about it. So I got involved more, right? So I think that it was just taking the ideas of doing it yourself. And as the, the timeline progressed, I started to just jump in more, you know, not only on the creative aspect musically, but visually. We touched on Fueled by Ramen Records. In our scene of music, Tony, Fueled by Ramen was it distributed by Atlantic. There was uh, imprint. But uh, John Janik, who runs Interscope, was actually the first president of that label. And uh, he's now running Interscope behind Jimmy Iovine. Right. But they were like the people who discovered Paramore and bands like that. Right. Vinny had a great ear. Like, I, he, one time I th- we sat and he played me some, he kind of asked me to be involved, I think, in Fueled by Ramen. I tried right. to put block this out of my mind <laughs> because I was already involved with Side One Dummy Records, so it wouldn't make sense to be involved probably with another label at that point. But I think he asked one point for me to be involved in the label, and I was just, once again, too busy um, and not really going to be pr- able to probably contrib- contribute anything. In you know, JR, you know, we were talking about, you know, how, you know, 30 years, your fans, even if they got into you when they were 10, are now maybe 40. <laughs> and they're playing for young fans, and they had some good good insight on how to do that. Because I think a lot of our fans have grown with us, you know, and I think they also have families now. I, I know that for a fact because when we do online shows and stuff like that, there's always people that send video clips via socials of them and their families dancing in a circle or doing a circle pit in the living room, you know, and it's cute, and I think it's great. You know, we put out – we try to uh, approach a family – thing when it comes to less than Jake. Then you had, you know, Chris, who has now hosting a pretty popular podcast in itself to stay connected oh, to. I didn't know people. that. Yeah, he's hosting a great one. I host a songwriting podcast now. And, you know, I always find myself um, talking about those songs that are 15, 20 years old in an artist's career, because those are the songs that have memories attached to them. This is no different. I mean, Kevin, this happens to you every day. You'll see a fan, someone will recognize you. You'll talk to somebody, man, that first time in 97, I just graduated high school. I went to the Warp Tour. Those mem- memories are what keeps all of all of this alive, you know, and our fans now, they we do these meet and greets. We'll be out with Real Big Fish, you know, and there'll be the family there, you know, mom and dad, and sometimes even the grandfather, who's not that much older than me now. The grandfather's maybe in his mid to late 50s. And um, so it's like two to three generations of people, and it's all about the members. Man, the first time we saw you was at Darien Lakes, you know, a warp tour. And, and, and they'll sit there and spew out every detail because it, mean, it means so much to them. You can't mess with the memories. Yeah, but for the rest of us, we've gotten half of that. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you look around and, you know, it's like, and then Roger kind of had a, he kind of summed it up how, why he thought they were around for 30 years in a way. Honestly, man, even back in the day, we were going like, Hey man, if bad religion's still doing it, why can't we still do it? I mean, uh, really, that's the benchmark. And like you say, our fans have kind of grown up, and there's they they kind of show up, and we've just been able to keep them interested. We 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 never had the big one hit wonder kind of phenomenon where we had a ton of fans and then they fell off when the next big thing hit. We just had kind of like an undergroundish thing that just kept building slowly but surely, and. And we're just really fortunate that our fans are like so loyal and so into all the stuff that we do and the wacky merch and the weird releases. And, and we just try to keep things entertaining. You know, we try to do, do things a little off the wall and add in our own comedy and humor and our own charm. And, and uh, luckily it's uh, the train's still rolling. So I think we're starting to see like a picture of a band last 
you know, 30 years. And you never know where those influences are going to come from. And J.R. kind of told me a little something that I didn't know about him. My father, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a funeral director. So the first job that I ever had was working in a funeral home. And during this pandemic, I've also, my cousin continues to work and own the funeral home. And so because of, you know, things have happened, I have helped him out and I've reverted back to where I started. My first job was 13 years old at a funeral home. And so now I'm almost 45 back at the funeral home. And so working at a funeral home makes you very acutely aware of what is important and what is not important in life. And um, it's also, you're dealing with people that are on their lowest ebb, you know? And so being kind is probably the biggest asset that you can have, right? Because your people are just not having a good day. They're having a very bad day when they see you at the funeral home normally, you know? Um, so what doing what I do and the ability to have the career that I've had to bring joy and happiness to people all the time selfishly that's why i keep doing it is because i like making people happy you know and that is the best for me the best part of it and what keeps me driving driven to keep going what a perspective he has that's what we always say just be nice you know be nice kind people there's nothing wrong with that it's not a weakness in this world being kind can kind of be sometimes viewed as a weakness oh i you know i and work it, on it every day you know, i can be a pain in the ass my wife know. tells me all the time so I strive. Is that why that pup tent's out in front of the house nice right now? Person. I was just wondering. I, you know, I thought like, Diego yes, was be nice. I thought Diego was camping out there. But. I'm getting older <laughs> and grumpier, but that have that perspective, and you can see it. You, you see it and hear it in him. He's completely sincere. You know, it's interesting. And we talked earlier. You know, it was mentioned earlier by Jr. that there's been many people in the band, and you know, been talking to to Vinny, who was such a major part of this band. Like you know, screening the T-shirts, learning everything to it. But, you know, a few years ago, he left the band. I was looking for someone to Sherpa, the punk rocker in me, across the, the, the threshold into, you know, bigger and, and not necessarily better things, but bigger things, right? And I, I, in, at certain moments in your life, being a creative, you look to other people for a mentor, right? And I, Kevin Lyman, you know, was a mentor to me. You know, when we went, hey, here's a punk rocker that started uh, doing this and worked his way up through hard work and through a vision, right? And you have to find those people. You were one of them. Mike Becker from Funko was another one for me for toys. And looking back on that, I, I it, when you're looking at other people in, in, in your business and you're looking at over the horizon line, you go, I, I need help. And, and yourself and Mike Becker to go, hey, man, maybe you should do X, Y, Z. Go, okay, I'm going to try X, Y, Z. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But everybody needs a mentor, right? And, and I think that being on tour and being on Warp Tour, it provides the ability to intersect with other people that sometimes know better, sometimes don't don't know better and you you could recognize that as well is he is he gotten back with the band or is no he... no no he's doing all kinds of things but priorities change and and, and Vinny touched on why i left at, at 27 years i mean for me it came to the point of my daughter you know she was 
seven at the time. And it was just time for me to be a dad and be a husband and, and explore other things. Right. And not just be locked into being gone for six to eight months a year. Sometimes it's just time, right? Sometimes you check all the boxes and it's, Hey, but I want to write a book and I want to do X, Y, Z. I want to explore everything, but doing so, I want to also be a great dad and I want to be a a good husband. You can't do that when you're, you're trying to go, okay, you're away on tour, but then you come back and have to scramble to do more business. Right. And you have to be involved in it so much. And there's, there's no room for anything else because it's that one thing becomes everything. I think he sums it up in so many ways. It doesn't have to be some blow up fist fight breakup of a band it's like the priorities changed and there was enough yeah. a lot of people in that band still want to do things and, and do but Vinny had other things he need, needed to do in life and yeah. no hard feelings really i loved how jr kind of told me uh what was going on i'll never forget it when this was all happening i was on vacation for the first time in like 15 years and that's when all shit hit the fan i'm like great and so chris called me and he's like I don't know why we're looking any farther when our answer is right in front of us, you know, Matt Yonker. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause Matt used to play in the teen idols and he did stuff with the queers for a long time, you know? So Matt was certainly a, a good musician, you know, and we were just happy to, to have him. So you may ask who Matt Yonker was. Oh, yes. Who's Matt Yonker. You know, and sometimes in, in, with bands, we go out and audition all these different people and everything. But that person might be right under your nose. And Matt was with this band for a long time. I kind of just dove into it and kind of was like, well, you know, we'll see see what happens. It was funny enough. It was 2001. Uh, Less than Jake had taken Teen Idols out on the full U.S. tour. And we hit it off with the guys immediately. And I didn't know the band before that. And at the end of that tour, I just had told Vinny at the time, Hey, if you ever need a drum tech or something, not really knowing what a drum tech was, just it was like, <laughs> okay, I can go out and tune drums, right? I, you know, I'd be interested. So not really thinking much about it. A couple months later, he hits me up and he goes, hey, do you want to do Warp Tour with us this year? And it was the two, 2001 Warp Tour. And, he, you know, he, he said, you'd be doing all of stage. And I play guitar you know, and I play drums and stuff, but I had never set anything up, never tuned stuff, you know, whatever. And I just said, okay, cool. I can do it. So that, that was my first tour ever working for a band was 2001 Warp Tour, um, doing all of stage. And they also had me selling merch. (laughs) (laughs) You know how he said he was going to drum tech. He knew how to drum tech. Yeah. One of my first jobs was, I said I could be a drum tech. There was a band in Los Angeles called the Untouchables, uh-huh. one of the very hot band at the moment. Right. And they had this guy, Glenn Simmons, who was a star drummer kind of thing. And I was working in the clubs. And then they fired their drum tech one night. And he, looked, and he said, we need a new drum tech. They were talking. I said, I could be your drum tech. And I'd never touched a drum in my life. <laughs> so I literally went to Guitar Center down on, on um, Sunset. Hey, can you teach me how to choose these? That's uh, so what I said. I go, do you have a magazine that shows you how to like set up drums? And the guy goes, what, what are you going to He goes, I just got a gig as a drum tech for the Untouchables. And, and people ever knew that band and that drummer. They're like, are you effing kidding me? So it's like 
no, I got to learn this. What I, how long do you have to learn? I go, by tomorrow. I have to go to rehearsals tomorrow. Oh, shit. And I went down to... I went down to the rehearsal studio. It's packed up for this little tour with Fishbone and Trouble Funk, a DC funk uh, go-go band. And I start touching the drums and I'm sweaty and I'm like trying to grab, I'm grabbing like a cymbal at a time. It's freaking out like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm trying to figure this out. And Glenn walks up, he goes, hey man, you're not a drum tech, are you? <laughs> he goes, that was kind of a ballsy move. Why don't you, I'll teach you how to do it though, man. Well, why don't you come out? And you know, I went out, had no idea. He was trying to help me through it. But the same day, they like fire the road manager. And they said, you'd be a better road manager than, <laughs> than a, than hey, a, a, than a drum tech. I go, sure, I can do that too. Literally, it was like, I wasn't really going to, but I made it through a few shows with him. Um, and, uh, you know, so you always start out, you know, but if you're going to be a drum <laughs> tech, like, at least know hey, what to do with you know what we really kit. need? We need a heart surgeon. So, hey, you know, I'll be a heart surgeon. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, it's a lot of times when you, when it's, when you need to replace a band member. And I've seen it so often. You, you do auditions. You know, that's how Chris Shiflett sure, yeah. got into the Foo Fighters, yeah. things like that. But all of a sudden, sometimes the light bulb goes off. It might be right in front of us. You know, Warp Tour ended that year, 2018. Um, and I had a son that was due any day. So I went home and he was he was born. And then Vinny did his last couple shows. And then he said, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm done. And I get the call from the guys going, you know, would you want to, would you want to do that? Do you think you could do it? And at this point I hadn't played drums in eight years. I stopped playing drums completely. Cause I, I kind of just was like, okay, I'm retiring from that. I'm, I'm doing front of house and tour managing and that kind of stuff. And that's what I'm just doing. So I wasn't planning on it. And of course, being me, I said, yeah, I could probably do it. So there, <laughs> you know, a couple of days later, I get a call from everybody going, okay, dude, like if you're going to do these upcoming shows there, and that's the other funny thing is there was 10, there was only 10 days before the next two shows, which were festival shows with bad religion and real big fish. And, you know, thousands of people. And those were my first two shows without a full band practice. I just went, I went in there and that was my my band practice. You know, learning so much about Matt, getting to talk to him during when I did this interview, you know, it was like that's the thing. I a can do attitude, and I think it was like one of those things. Like you know, he's a drum tech, and a lot of times he very in, just does his thing. Good morning, good afternoon, uh -huh. working. But I, I mean, I'm sure everyone's face is like dropped when he sat down behind the drum kit oh, when yeah. the set was like, supposed to weren't start. Weren't you the weren't you the you... drum tech? And all of a sudden he was there. But it was natural. And Roger had some good comments on that. You know, he's been working for the band for so long. He's done all the different jobs, tour managing, front of house, all that. And uh, you know, he's the drummer for the Teen Idols band that I loved for a long time. And yeah, he's just been kind of hanging on the sidelines in that aspect. And it, it was good for us in the sense of there was no additional vibe in the camp, you know, like we, he's already been in the camp and the vibe is all the same. So it's not like we went out and found a new drummer and it added like a new personality to the mix. Matt's been there for like, you know, going on 20 years already. So, so that was like kind of the best part about it. There's, there's really no change in the dynamic between the rest of us. When you're a touring band like them, Matt knew where to sit on the bus. He knew like the routine of everyone. Sure. So there was no. And that's probably a sustaining the longevity of that band. Yeah. You know, when you get somebody new and it gets weird. It gets weird. And all of a sudden he becomes a drummer, comes in and he's dancing on the tables in the middle of the night when everyone's trying to read their books or. So do... I have a question for you. What now that the Warp Tour is no longer 
Um, what are they doing now? Well, really, that kind of was something we had to talk about because we're talking when COVID hit, we're talking a touring band that did over 200 shows a year. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find out what everyone was doing. You know, Matt gave me a little perspective. Whenever we're not touring, I record bands here in Nashville, mainly like smaller punk bands and stuff. I have a small studio called Drastic Sounds, and I've been doing that since, I don't know, 2009, somewhere around there, like in between tours, keeping busy. I have been touring pretty much nonstop since 96. I mean, having a couple months here and there off, you know, but never really stopping either playing or touring with bands. So this has been the longest that I've been home, I think, for one stretch. And, you know, I've been me and my wife have been together for, you know, married for 15 years and been together longer than that. And it's definitely like, whoa, this is kind of cool. Luckily, we found out we still like each other. So that's good. <laughs> and I, I think that's really cool that they like each other because, sadly, so many people I know are getting got, wiped out, are, are getting divorced right now. You know, there's like, you know, divorce lawyers are probably going to be pretty busy I, for I, a while. I, I can say the same. My wife and my kid, we all get along pretty well. And that's because I do everything she tells me. <laughs> Before she tells you. I'm mean, just down the line. I walk the line, baby. Walk the line. You know, um, so, you know, it was also, you know, I asked Roger, you know, like for him, and Roger is like the touring guy. He's still the guy, loves the cities, loves the people, loves all that. What's, what are you doing, Roger? I mean, I haven't been on a plane in like a year and a half, man. That's just crazy for me. But, um, yeah, so, I, you know, for the first chunk of the thing, I was just kind of kind of hit hard. I just really missed touring and I, I just didn't really realize how addicted to all that I was. And I, I was kind of just bummed for a while there. And after like five or six months, then I started to, um, started to come around. I started to realize that this is a great opportunity to have like a little, uh, like a, like a fake retirement, like a rehearsal retirement. <laughs> so I just started, you know, playing the board games that I hadn't played in years and, you know, reading the books that you pick up on tour that you don't find time to read and just kind of like doing things around the house and sort of just being like an old man and just like sort of enjoying the fake retirement. And, and I'm actually totally cool with it right now. And, and, uh, the, my studio has been fairly busy. I've been, you know, still recording bands throughout the pandemic and, you know, working on less Jake songs, working on rehasher songs, my other band, and just, just staying in music in general. But, uh, a lot of just, uh, a lot of being able to enjoy the space and the air, you know? How we handled the pandemic was, you know, going into it was different for everyone. You know, coming out of it now is going to be a very important time because, you know, humans can adapt, but now we're going through these compressed needs to adapt. So, you know, as we're starting to go back into like people getting ready to go on the road, are they going on tour? I think some people are really looking at it going, am I ready to go back on tour or have I learned to be at home and I've adapted so well? I I don't know. I I know a lot of people in music and bands and they're jumping out now. Like people like, but Florida's open, right? Well, let's book Florida. I mean, my buddy's playing Red Rocks tonight. Uh, And Sierra went up to Red Rocks uh, and saw uh, 303 the other night. She flew up there and hung out and saw those guys. Eric, he had a big charity event yesterday, and then he's playing Red Rock. So, I mean, they're out there. Um, they're they're getting but, you know, We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see if people I, can handle the road again. Yeah, because... but you, well, we were talking earlier. They were saying uh, that the COVID's spiking in, in Portland again. So who knows what's going to happen? We don't know where it's going to go. But, you know, for now, there's shows, and everyone's trying to get out. And, you know, people have been talking about live streaming. Why people, and I'm going, who wants to sit there and watch a live stream right now? 
you know, after a year, you want to be outside, yeah. you know, you want to just Tell be out and running and live streaming is going to come, be here. It's going to adapt. But right now, I don't know. The hardest thing I think you could do is sit there and watch a show on, on, on live streams, but they'll adapt and they'll come back. But you know, as buddy, what he's been up to. I think that comes a lot from the fact that we have toured so much and never really stopped. So, you know, we, we all started out as kind of friends in town before we were touring a lot and we would hang out at home. But <laughs> Over the years, you know, after being, you know, butts to nuts in, in a bus or a van for weeks and months on end, when you get home for those three weeks, the last thing you want to do is see those same people. So we did kind of branch off when we get home and, and try to have somewhat of our own lives. And then we all kind of branched off and do our own separate things, too. We have like, you know, everyone's got studios and everyone's got uh, just, you know, other things are doing. Chris has his podcast now, which I think is is a great thing for him to have latched onto. And I th- it's doing really well. So that's that's a great thing for him. I kind of asked JR, and I think a lot of people are, 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 this is where people mindset that I've been talking to, where they're at. I have pretty much been on tour since I was about 20, no, younger, 18, probably. I've been on tour more than I've been home since I'm 18. And I, I'm about to turn 45. So in the last 30 years, this is the longest I've been home since I was in high school, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. You like it? Yeah, low key. I really have been loving it. Um, on a personal level, it's great. It, it was great because things like my cousin's children, they all know my name now. I'm not just the weird dude that shows up on holidays. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm, they're all little kids and I'm never around, you know, so now it's kind of nice to be able to, they know who I am. Um, it was nice to spend time with the people that I love, even though it was a stressful situation, you know, and, um, I feel like we've done a lot of stuff with less than Jake too, which is great. It was interesting because when Fran was raising the girls, for a while, she would take him to events. And then one time I showed up and they thought she was a single mother. <laughs> you know, they're like, wait, there's a father here. Well, we knew there was a father, but we didn't know he was still in the picture, to be honest, because I was gone all the time. Right, of course. So, you know, in summing up in my discussions with all of them, they may be picking and choosing their touring a little more. They may not be doing. I mean, 30 years is a long time. They, it's they like might, you seeing people change, right? You know, they may be like, OK, we're going to make sure we have that balance of the road and balance of, of home now. Well, I'm also curious, you know, after understanding what uh, other members are doing now during this COVID, but do, what do we have to look forward to from Less Than Jake in the future? Is there another album coming out? Oh, I mean, I'm sure they've got songs. They ride, they're, they're prolific writers. They're going to do all kinds of things. What about Vinny? Well, yeah. Is he, what's he doing now that he's not in the band? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people out there would love to know because he was such a big part of that band. 2020, Mike had reached out and said, hey, I'm thinking about making a... Yeah. Uh, punk rock store called the Vegas punk shop. And I went, yeah. And he, he knew that, you know, I've, I've done a lot of merch and, and that's what I like to do. He's like, Hey, you could do this. But that quickly sort of went with, we're going to do a Vegas punk shop to now we're going to do a museum. And now we all have to learn how to do a museum and how to pull together. And it's been, it's been challenging, but awesome. I am working as one of the founders. So we're going through everything of artifacts to accessioning. Uh, but what originally the idea, uh, I would be in charge of the look. I did the logo and charge of, in charge of the look and the merchandise. 
And that's what I'm working on now. I didn't know he was involved in the punk rock museum in Vegas. Yeah, everyone seems to be involved, right? Everybody's a part of that. (laughs) Everyone's involved in the punk rock museum in Vegas. And I'm sure with those people, it's going to be a great museum, you know? I I asked him the question, like, you know, are you going to, you know, you're putting away the drums? I've been writing music and releasing records with Obi from Westbound Train and Alex from Alex from Big D and the Kids Table, Billy from Interrupters, Matt from Real Big Fish, uh, and it's called The Inevitable. So it's it's also a, a comic book. So I'll send you the comic and I'll send you the music. You can check it out. The guy is prolific. And the people are playing with Obi stuff. Obi, beautiful voice. You know? Oh, really? I can't, the music's great. He gave me a couple demos to take a listen to. That's good. It's fabulous. Uh, so, so, you know, that's, you know, less than Jake. I mean, I, I think you... Now understand a little bit more about this it's, band. You know, I've listened to the music and I love it. My kid and I love the music. He's playing the music at home in the yeah. studio. Um, but after you know seeing them being interviewed by you, I feel like I mean, these guys are my generation. You know, they're they're near my age, and it's it's just wild. I had no idea that they. You think when you think about a band that's been around and had longevity, you think the Rolling Stones, right. or you don't think. You know, this band that you've heard of is great, but oh my God, you turn around 30 years. It's remarkable. It's it's almost unbelievable because it's such a hard feat. So I it's good on them and it's it says a lot about them, their personalities, and you can see it, uh, how they're they're able to sustain that that type of longevity. It was really fun catching up with these people and you realize what a part of your life they are and how you crisscross, you know, now I'm doing these interviews, Tony, with everyone. I can't wait to crisscross with people again and spend some time. We're really with these interviews, I've been able to spend like, you know, a lot of time with these people and we're just putting highlights and clips, you know, so the Patreon, if you want to hear more, I mean, these stories about an hour long, you know, I've got to interview some of these people for over an hour and we really kind of dug deep into like, and it's nice for you to be able to do that because the last time you saw them, you were probably answering your phone, listening to your walkie talkie, running to the next stage. Well, they did. I had to have them on the, the 20th, the 25th anniversary shows. Les and Jake had to be part of those, you know, but today, you know, we want to always end, you know, we kind of end with a, a nonprofit Mm -hmm. And this nonprofit, profit, a voice for the innocent, was someone who kind of stepped in when I was going through trying to figure out and how to help people. And I, I didn't have all the answers because, you know, though I had to learn and I learned on the road and I learned things, there's times you need to bring in the experts. And, and a voice for the innocent specials, uh, specialized in people that have been sexually abused or harassed, um, sometimes online or sometimes in person. And it's a great support system. And, and I, I was looking for some help because I, I realized that a lot of t- that was an, a huge issue with a lot of the teens that we came across and I didn't have the answers and you know but I so I went and I met this guy Jamie who uh, was in Ohio and I was right in the midst of a lot of crap going on that year in 2017 and he came in and uh, we brought Jamie in and he started helping me with this and then got involved with Warped and now it's become a national nonprofit that it helps people a a voice for the innocent uh, a fabulous group um and um, I'd love to, you know, learn for you to learn a little bit, a little bit more from Jamie. A Voice for the Innocent is a community of support for people who've been hurt by sexual violence. Um, and we uh, we launched in 2012, um, and it was kind of spearheaded by my own story um, of having dealt with sex abuse when I was a kid, and um, 
you know, as I grew up, I was fortunately had a lot of support around that from my mom and my family. And I, I just learned how many, how many people out there had experienced sexual violence who did not have that same support um, or, or who didn't, weren't even believed or tried to, tried to get help and didn't know where to turn and all that. And, and so, um, you know, I, I wanted a spot where folks could come and find support and find resources and find help and just have a community to talk to. And so that's what, that's what we set out to do. And so that, you know, we have our anonymous storytelling platform at avfti.org and then, yeah, going out and events and just reaching out to people where they are. If you want to volunteer, you just go to avfti.org slash volunteer. Um, and our volunteers sign up uh, to respond to stories once a week. Um, and we ask them to respond to five to seven stories a week. And what that does is it allows our volunteers to not have a huge burden on them. It allows them to make a direct impact and give our storytellers a lot of support, but without burning out the volunteers. We had a whole events committee trying to figure out what, because because financially we're pretty small, and so you know we 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 rely on events and and try to pay for events as they come up. And we had a whole committee working out some different festivals after we after Warped Tour ended, and we um, we were like, okay, so what do our summers look like now? Um, and trying to fill that up with some different weekends and that, and then that all kind of came crashing down as we were planning it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely still see events in the future and, and sponsoring band tours. That was a thing we were loving doing and having different volunteers in every city. And we loved that. So, so definitely hoping to get back to that, you know, as soon as possible. Thank you to all our guests. And of course, thanks to all the listeners. I want to, I want to make sure you follow us on Instagram Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Spotify, Apple, all of it. Uh, and, and also post your stories because Kevin's doing this thing now where he's finding the best ones that they like and you're going to make the show. Yeah, this is a fan comment from fan Jen Corsilli, who's also an amazing production manager uh, for Live Nation and did the production on our 25th anniversary show out in Atlantic City. But we won't tell anyone you were drinking on the job. They popped a tiki bar up backstage. I was with Kevin Lyman and some of my... AEG co-workers hanging backstage and couldn't resist grabbing a drink from my favorite band. They were great and kind, as always, and pour a very stiff drink. This is a comment from Joe Giamalva. LTJ used to be known for having crazy stage performances with all sorts of characters on stage. The first time I saw them, they had a dude dancing around completely naked and wearing an ET mask. One day on WT99, I just asked, hey, I have a mask. Can I get wild with you guys? And they said, yes, I'm a, I'm a big dude. And Roger told me to write fear this on my bare chest and run out and stage dive as they took the stage. It was the most fun. They had me up with them several times over the years and, and they were always so kind and fun. You can text us any topics you want to hear at 818-863-6445. That's 818-863-6445. I'd like to thank our new Patreon subscriber, Isabella Hart. And actually, our next episode is starting where I interviewed families who came to Warp Tour. I don't know if, if you've seen all those TikToks going it's around. Nuts. This the is going to be a fun show. The TikToks going around where it, the mother's complaining about having to take her children yeah. to Warp Tour and just you whining. You actually interviewed these people? Well, no, I... I haven't interviewed them, but I interviewed other people who might have a different perspective. <laughs> and I think it's going to end up being two episodes. There's so much great stuff there. That's awesome. And I've had such a fun time interviewing 
these people and just hearing their stories and hearing where they're at now. You're going to love those. It's been fun. So, you know, I guess it's time to say our thank yous. Um, I'd love to say thank you to Xavier Bradley, our producer. Our producer extraordinaire. Uh, Beata Shemtov. What's up, girl? You're here. Who's actually been sitting here, and she's going to get a, probably sue us for a sunburn after That's all right. this. We've been on the sun. Um, Vivian Wang, who, you know, her Vivian wedding's Wang. coming up very quickly I here. Oh, isn't it amazing? It's going to be amazing, and I, I'm looking forward to but that. she will be back for the... The, the pilot. Yeah, so we're shooting good. the pilot. We've got a date for that. Uh, my family, of course, you know, they've been letting us, you know, hang out and me working on this all the time. Uh, I don't know. And who else we always have the to take? The most important person on the, the planet. planet. Diego Aratia. Take it away. Take it away, brother. <laughs> <laughs>